On today's episode of Hungry for Wisdom, it's apparently a long way from the ear to the heart. How many different ways can the world really end? And big deal, little deal, or no deal, Jesus rose from the dead. That's a big deal. It's episode eight. Turn it up. Welcome to Hungry for Wisdom. This is the podcast for people who want to know what God knows. He hasn't told us everything, but man, he has told us a lot. I'm Dustin, pastor at Grace and Truth. If you want to know what God knows, let's dig in. And today's episode is dedicated to our buddy Levi over at Fulcrum Electric. He just uh, started this business, struck out on his own, and he does great work. He's done work over at, uh, at my house, and I trust him not only as an electrician, but also just as a human. Good, solid brother in Christ. So uh, if you need some electrical work done, call Fulcrum Electric, and uh, you can email him at Levi at FulcrumElectric.com. Go give him your business. He's a good dude. All right, so uh, today's Proverbs Devo yeah, we'll go with Devo. I don't think that's too geeky. Today's Proverbs Devo is going to come from Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Here we go. Man, I'm hungry for wisdom. How you doing, Pastor Ben? You feeling hungry? Starving. I, I have not feared the beard. We have brought back the illustrious Pastor Ben. Thank you. All right, so Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 5. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of Yahweh and discover the knowledge of God. All right, so do you want to know what God knows? Well, of course you do. That's why you subscribe to a podcast where we try and find what God knows and we dig as deep as we can and we just try to internalize it. So what's happening here? is Solomon is telling us how to find it. And basically what he says here is, if you love it, you get it. That's the way God laid out the system. If you love wisdom, you get wisdom. This is an interesting chapter in Proverbs 2 because there's no actual instruction that's given, at least in this section. It's just a bunch of like if-then statements. So it's statement of fact, it's warnings, it's things like that. But there's no real instruction. Hey, do this and that will happen. It's just like, hey, if you love this, then here's kind of what the results are going to be like in in a, you know, in broad strokes. And so the the if then statement goes like this. If you love the knowledge of God, then you get it. If you love wisdom, you end up getting wisdom. So, verse 1 to he says if you will receive wisdom. Now, receiving is the it's the same word for grasping. In other words, there's there's a passive element where you receive something. There's also an active element where you grab onto it, right? So if somebody gives you something, you can receive it gladly, you can grasp it, or you can reject it. And what he's saying here is, hey, wisdom is being placed right in front of you on paper, black and white. Now you reach out and grab it. This is like a, it's a cooperative effort between teacher and student. It's a synergistic uh, um, uh, pursuit of wisdom. God gives, we actively receive in, in his design of things. And then uh, verse two, he says, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. And so that's the thing. So from, from the ear to the heart, right? It's not just a matter of listening and being able to parrot what somebody says. What he's saying is, let it sink in. Take that 18-inch drop from the ear to the heart. Solomon wants more from his son than for him to just simply listen and hear what he says and be able to repeat it and pass a test. He wants him to internalize it, right? I'll put it this way. He wants his son to want it. So when you pray for your kids, right, you, 
you pray for them in a lot of ways, but you and you do pray for their education and their minds to develop and so on. But you're not just praying for their minds; you're praying for their hearts. You want their character to develop. How much information they can cram into their brains is important, especially in their school years and in their early professional years and so on. But that's not really the 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 crux of the matter. That's not really what determines how they turn out, what you're really thinking about. When you pray for your kids, you're praying for their hearts far more than their minds. Like I don't I don't care nearly as much about how much my kids know as I do about if they are able to receive knowledge when it's presented to them. In other words, so when I was, um, I was not a great student. I'll, I'll admit that. Most of that is because I was lazy and undisciplined and I cared about music more than, you know, school. And school, a lot of times school just didn't make sense to me, right? Like math, for example. I didn't get it. It was all theoretical. It was like two what plus two what equals four what. We're not talking about anything, you know? And then about three weeks before I graduated high school, it hit me. And it just hit me out of the blue. And I got so mad at all of my teachers that nobody ever told me this. And it was not about the information, right? Most of school, I mean, some of it was. You need to know your history and so on. But most of it wasn't about the information. It was about learning how to learn, because if you can learn how to learn, you can adapt to any environment. You can really succeed in, in any format or any forum that you end up in. And so I don't care as much about how much my kids know as I do about whether they are able to receive knowledge. And that's what Solomon's saying here. Don't let it stop with the ear. Make sure that, it, that you internalize it. Make sure it drops down to the heart. Verse 5, he says, Then, so if this all happens, then... You will discern the fear of Yahweh, and you will discover the knowledge of God. So he reminds us again here, as we've talked about before, there's an inextricable link between wisdom and knowing God. Right? The, the, the more of God's wisdom we have, the more of God we know. You have to acknowledge yourself as being something of a fool in order to come to Christ. Right? It's like, I need to know you. And then when you do, you end up knowing things and understanding things that you never would have had access to before. And so when you acknowledge yourself as being something of a fool, being in need, then God receives you that way. He doesn't leave you that way, though. That's the thing, right? Like 1 Corinthians 1, he says, Paul tells the Corinthians, hey, not many of you were wise, not many of you were, um, were, were powerful and gifted and things like that. But in chapter 6, he says, God didn't leave you the way that he found you, right? You were washed, you were sanctified, you were glorified, and things like that. So he, he, sees, he finds you as a fool, and he makes you wise. That's what he does for his children. So in other words, love wisdom, and you'll get wisdom. There's this old saying in the business world, you get more of what you measure. So whatever your metrics are, that determines your values, that determines what you move toward, what you focus on. And that movement towards those things that you measure, that has an effect. It ends up getting you more of whatever it is that your metrics are telling you are your, your core values. It gets you where your eyes have been looking. So you get more of what you measure. Love it, and you get it. When people are learning to ride a motorcycle, they tell you, you know, you're going to go where your eyes look, right? So they would make us do these, uh, these figure eights when I was taking my, uh, my licensing course for, the, for my motorcycle endorsement. You had to do a figure eight in a parking stall. And when you look at a parking stall, you're like, that's tiny. I'm not going to be able to whip a bike around in that thing. And you can't really because when, when you try to do those hairpin turns, it's really easy to wipe out. But they, they teach you a trick. And what they say is look over your shoulder as far as you can. Right. And if, if you look back there, it's, you know, the, the bike just ends up where you're looking. And however the mechanics work, it doesn't even matter. You don't need to know what every muscle is doing. You just look somewhere. And it's the craziest thing. You end up right where your eyes were pointing. So what, whatever you focus on, or we could say on a heart level, whatever you love, 
you wind up grasping in some measure. Keep your eyes on it, and you'll end up there in some way at some point. Love wisdom, you get wisdom. Now, i got to be careful at this point because there's this, uh, this philosophy out there um, called the law of attraction. You know, um, Oprah was pimping a book years ago called The Secret. You remember that? The, the Secret. And it was basically the law of attraction. It was if you speak something out into the universe, then the universe ends up giving it back to you and whatever. It, it was, uh, you know, just kind of run-of-the-mill paganism, honestly. Uh, and so am I saying the same thing? If you love wisdom, then the universe ends up giving you wisdom. That's not what's going on here. What's happening is that Solomon is laying out the general way that things work in how God has designed the world. So Proverbs essentially says, look, here's the way God created stuff, and now I'm going to give you a roadmap to navigate God's design skillfully. So it's not some, you know, cosmic, mystical code crack. It's just the way that God made it. Love wisdom, you get wisdom. So keep reading Proverbs every day and decide that this will be one of your core values. And as you love what God loves, which is wisdom, then you get what God loves, which is wisdom and godliness. And he is faithful to, to give you what he says he will give you. Where did that song come from? What in the world is that? Wow. Almost kind of has a, has a thriller vibe to it. You know, a little bit. Little, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Wow. I'm going for a personal record on how many transitions what? I can what? blow in... Uh, Hungry for wisdom. Hey, 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 yeah. All right. Well, let's. Uh, let's. I'm. I'm kind of wondering what's coming up next here. I got five minutes left of bumper music. I've apparently never heard. I kind of like that. You know what we're gonna do? We're gonna let that play in the background. What do we got for this is and that's this time, Pastor Ben? All right. So a couple questions. Uh, first off, we'll see what we'll see how these roll out. Um, uh, question comes in. You said once that the resurrection was not nearly as big of a deal as the birth of Jesus. Um, <laughs> is that heresy? <laughs> heresy! Heresy alert! Burn him at the stake! <clears throat> All right, this is, yeah, my, my favorite uh, church historian, my favorite reformer is William Tyndale, so apparently I deserve to follow him by being burned at the stake here. All right, so I said... Okay, this is what happens when you're a communicator for a living, right? Sometimes you say things wrong. Sometimes you say things right, things get taken wrong. I am not sure which one of those happened here because I, I'm not sure. I mean, I've said stuff like that many times. I'm not sure exactly which example this person was um, was grabbing onto. So apparently I said, let me just get this straight, that the resurrection was not as big of a deal as the incarnation. Yes. Okay. That is the accusation. How say you, sir? <laughs> As I sit before the synod, um, the <laughs> I'm turning this music off. This is getting weird on me. The yeah, the um, okay. So where where I've come down on this whole thing, basically, J.I. Packer made a statement once, and I, I it really resonated with me. What he said was that. You know, if if Jesus is actually God and we believe that he is, then the resurrection is exactly what you would expect after he dies. So it doesn't mean it's not a big deal. It just means it logically follows that if God in the flesh dies, that that is not the end of God in the flesh, that there's a resurrection, that there is eternal life, and that he possesses it within himself and that he has the authority to lay down his life and the authority to pick it back up again whenever he darn well feels like it. So the resurrection makes a lot of sense. That That fits into the calculus of of the the gospel events. But what Packer said, which I really agreed with, was, but where did this incarnation thing come from, right? God actually becoming a man. So it wasn't a matter of the resurrection being less important than the incarnation, but maybe from a certain perspective, less surprising, 
right? Like the incarnation just blows me away. So, um, I mean, and there are a lot of great passages to go to here. You got your finger on one. What do you got? Well, I was thinking about this, you know, in Hebrews chapter one, right? The author says long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And it was interesting because it, it seems even here that the author, even in the use of that word, his son, in, in the Greek, the, the definite article is missing. It's supposed to call out that particular aspect of God's communication. Like this is supposed to be a shocking event yeah, in yeah. human history. Yeah, and it, and it really is. I mean, nobody had ever done this before. There are these myths about, you know, the gods intertwining with... In fact, you know, in, in Acts... Um, gosh, I'm going to misquote this. Is it 16 or 19 or something? Where um, uh, they thought that that Paul... It must have been 16 because by uh, by 19 they had split up. Um, they thought that Paul and Barnabas were gods in the flesh, that they were, you know, Hermes and, and uh, Zeus, I think it was. And... Um, they were like they were calling out to him and saying, "Hey, the gods have come to visit us." So they had a category for incarnation of of gods, but their gods weren't sovereign overall, you know, sources of all creation and whatever. I mean, it was a, it was a, a much smaller leap for their gods to express themselves for their little you know little g gods or little deities to express themselves in forms of humanity because they were basically just higher forms of humanity. We've got a god who's holy and other, and he's he's in a completely different category of existence than our temporal you know, um, uh, limited physical space. So the idea of an incarnation is, is one thing that I suppose you could see echoes of other places before it actually happened in, in, um, in very, uh, insufficient forms, comp- you know, compared to what we, we look for compared to what we look to our, our incarnation for in Christianity. But what we never get to see is God becoming a man and then vicariously suffering in order to save us. Right. Yeah. Like that whole thing, Okay, so I, I was just watching um, with my kids. I was watching the second season of The Chosen, right? And they have this scene with with Mary where I really like the way they do the dialogue in that show. It's pretty insightful. And, of course, it's all made up. It's artistic license, right? But they do a good job with it. And Mary was sitting around the campfire with the disciples, and she was talking about what she felt when Jesus was born. Because she had all the prophecies, and she you know, she had the, the appearance of the angel Gabriel and so on. And there was all this stuff. But, and she said... I didn't understand a lot of it. All I knew at that moment was he needed me. You know, he needed to be cleaned off. He needed to be fed. And so, like, this is supposed to be everlasting father, mighty God, prince of peace, and he needs his mama, you know? And so we've got these, like, these ideas that happen in the incarnation that don't seem to fit in a human head, <laughs> you know? So, like, I just what what God actually accomplished there, right? So we actually named our, our church after... Um, one of the explanations of the incarnation in John chapter one. So the church is called grace and truth. And now this is a podcast for grace and truth folks. So they know that, but if anybody else is jumping in here, which by the way, I looked at the metrics on anchor and apparently, uh, 3% of our listeners are in China. So me, how? All right. So anyway, um, the, uh, uh, the verse that we named our church after is John one fourteen, right? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, John chapter 1, verse 1, the very opening of the book, in the beginning was the Word. Now, in the beginning is obviously a reference to Genesis, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, John is taking us straight back there, and he's saying, right there at the get-go, you've got 
the word. This is a, you know, in English we capitalize the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So you've got some kind of, you know, unified being of God who's complex and multiple within his one self. And there's all of these like doctrines getting hinted at, but not really expounded upon yet until later in the book. It says the word was, um, was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. So as God created the heavens and the earth, it was this word that was actually doing the act, the act of creation. He was the active agent in creation. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. So he's not only the source of stuff, he's the source of the, the word of God, whatever, you know, whatever that means at this point. John just says it, he doesn't quite explain it. And he's the source of life, and he's the source of light, because in him was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness, the darkness does not comprehend it. And then, you know, he goes on down from there, and then we come to verse 14. So this, this word, who is eternal, he is the creator, he is God, and yet he's with God, who we would later see as the Father and the Son and all of this, like this these fantastically complex relationships that we don't really have any analogies for, you know? <laughs> you, ever, you ever taken a tour of the, the Trinitarian analogies that we try to use that just fail? Oh, I mean, gosh, yes. Well, God's kind of like a, uh, he's like a pretzel, man. He's like one unit, but with three parts. It's like, no, God's not divided that way. Yeah, and he's not like uh, ice and water and steam, you know, the, yeah. the whole phases of matter. That does I tried that one once. Although I did find out there's like a triple point where in the right temperature, under the right pressure, it can actually technically be all three at once. So maybe if I was a smart scientist or something, I could make an analogy work there. But I'm not, so I can't. And I'm not going to try because then I actually would deserve to get burned at the stake. So this this word became flesh, right? So eternity squeezed itself into something non-eternal. Yep. Figure that one out. Yeah. You know, like I, I just, that's why, that's why I say that the, the incarnation is surprising to me because, you know, with the resurrection, you can, this is just my personal feelings. Maybe you feel different about this, Ben. I don't know. You can sit there and think about the resurrection and that's an amazing thing to think about and you can trace out the implications of it. And, you know, what was he doing? What was he saying? What was the declaration of God where he declared Jesus to be the son of God by power through the resurrection? There's a lot of good stuff to think about there, but it's all in the implications of the resurrection. When, you know, we, we pretty much can, I think, understand the actual event. Somebody who was dead came back to life. Okay. But with the incarnation, it's a question of like, what just happened? <laughs> you know, it's kind of, kind of a different way of, uh, it's a different zone of exploration. So anyway, that's why I say the incarnation personally is actually my favorite doctrine to explore. If I could, if you said, okay, I will buy you every book on a certain theological subject, what do you choose? I would I would choose the incarnation. I love it personally. It it lights my fire. I don't know. Well, I mean, I think I think it's interesting because it, it, I don't think taking that position it downplays the importance of the atonement or the importance of the resurrection yeah. in the life of the believer. Um, but the surprising nature of or the surprising aspect of God willingly, first of all, being willing to start this plan in motion that would accomplish our redemption by crushing his beloved son, mm-hmm. right? That, that's, that, that is a shocking thing. And, and the resurrection is, is, the, is the conclusion of the matter in the sense of payment received, right? Yeah, and exactly. so, so is it 
is it no less important than the incarnation? Of course not. No, no, it's all equal there. I but, mean, without any of those things, you don't have the gospel. Exactly. Right? Yeah. But but to but to stop and to consider, no, no, no. God actually, you know, the Creator of the universe, the holy other person that we have no concept for except for outside of what He has revealed to us. Yep. And how did He? How does He reveal that to us? If you have seen me, Jesus says, then you have seen the Father. We can we can understand what God is like because he has intentionally expressed himself in such a way that if skin and bone and, and everything, we can see that. That itself, that I mean even just that makes the hair on the back of my neck <laughs> stand up straight. You know, rather don't get me wrong, the resurrection is amazing. It's this huge, like, you know, that, that's like spiking the football once you hit a touchdown. Yeah, that's like yeah. boom, done. Well, and Paul says in First Corinthians fifteen, without that, we don't have Christianity. Exactly. So I mean without the resurrection, I mean, we don't have Christianity. So we would never want to downplay that. We're the resurrection people. Like yeah. and, and I've said before, we have a resurrection based theology, right? Mm-hmm. It, it is the key of so much. But the mystery, like the just the the incarnation kind of just comes out of left field, you know? Yeah. And and I think I mean you read Hebrews one. That's where he's going with that, right? God had spoken many times, many ways, through the prophets, through the fathers, all this stuff. And then this thing just happened. And and it was and he says, in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. So when this happened, the incarnation, the perfect life of Jesus, which a perfect human life had never happened before, the um the the death on behalf of sinners, the resurrection proving that it worked, all of this stuff that was an era shifting thing. Like the the cosmos was essentially rearranged and slammed into a new a, a new phase of existence when yep. when all of yep. this happened, right? And so that yeah, the, the incarnation is just this thing that it's like I think we're going to spend the rest of eternity just looking at at God and at God the Father and the Son and saying, what did you? do (laughs) and marvel at it and wonder at it yeah gosh yeah we could spend probably several millennia just going what the heck yeah yeah exactly well and so romans 3 is a big deal here you know um there's this statement in romans 3 where he says so that god may be just and the justifier of the (laughs) oh i wish we had this on video you guys should see our faces right now we're just like head banging i feel like listening to crazy train right now that's what i feel like doing (laughs) Anyway, so that God may be just and the justifier of those who believe. And the question is, like, how did God pull all of that off, right? Because there's, you know, how, how, can, you, how can you declare people innocent while dealing with them as though they are guilty and then handling their sin, right? So he looks at guilty sinners who he acknowledges to be guilty, and then he says, not guilty. It's like, what? <laughs> so, you know, but that, that can only happen if he, you know, it's like if, if you had said that, if you had explained the gospel like that before Jesus showed up, it would have been like, these two things are contradictory. You can't make these two things come together. But neither can you make God and man come together because you got the holy and the sinful. And then in the incarnation, there's like this blending. There's this emulsification of stuff where like two separate units, you got oil and water and they become one thing. And it, you know, it, it basically just makes you want to say, know if I've ever seen the uh, amalgamation of Ozzy Osbourne and theology. Did you hear that rattle that was in there? <laughs> Incarnation riff! Incarnation riff! Oh my gosh. <laughs> Here's the point, people. The incarnation melts faces. That's what it does. Okay, alright. We can <laughs> we can go off on the incarnation all day because I love it. I love it! What else we got? Alright, so, second question. Well, you said, Pastor Dustin. Another one? Uh, yes, oh exactly. Oh, my goodness. You said once in a sermon. Job. Yeah, that's true. No. You, <laughs> s- 
You said once in a sermon that every religion has it, has an eschatology. Is that actually true? I mean, you even said that atheism has an eschatology. I mean, what the heck? Yeah. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, apparently I'm terrible at my job. So, Pastor Ben, does atheism have an eschatology? Everything has an eschatology. Yeah. Atheism is just end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. Yeah. Here's, here's atheism's eschatology. Done. That's it. Yeah. So, okay, let's, let's define this. Eschatology is the study of the last things. Okay. So eschaton is the Greek word for the last things. Ology is the Greek word for ology. And so you have eschatology, the study of the last things. So in every, so every religion basically seeks to answer certain questions. How did we get here? What are we doing here? And where do we go when we leave here? Right. And then there are worldviews that don't claim any association with um, any particular religion. But actually, if you look at it, then they do seek to answer all of the same questions. So you can take a look at, um, you know, the, the worldview of evolution for, for a moment. And I'm, I'm choosing not to, um, what is that? I don't know if this is getting picked up on the microphone. Apparently we're doing a podcast in the middle of a construction zone. So if you hear weird noises, sorry. Um, but the, uh, the, the worldview of evolution, I'm choosing not to refer to it as a scientific theory right now because I want to talk about the philosophical implications of it, right? So there's, there's a worldview that goes along with that. How did we get here? By accident and randomly, right? Time and chance acting on matter. And then what are we doing here? Well, whatever we decide we're doing here, essentially. We, by implication, we have to eke out some significance and a moral code that's beneficial to society and things like that. And then where do we go when we leave here? We get reabsorbed back into this closed system of nature and our molecules wind up being, you know, part of some other animal or dirt or whatever. So um, it, it has answers to all these things. And it's a very it's a very truncated worldview because there's not a whole lot at the beginning. There's not a whole lot at the end. And so it squeezes all of our significance into now. Well, you live a certain way based on that, right? That's going to have implications in how you live. I remember when I was in um, high school, we were, um, it, it hit me that, that these people are telling me that I'm basically a smarter version of a monkey, right? And then, so, so when I was in um, middle school was when the Columbine shooting happened, right? And um, that was what, 99, something like that? Yep. So I was in about seventh grade. And then I'm thinking about that and stuff like that and all the ca- the copycat crimes and things like that over the next years. And when I was in high school, I, the, the contradiction of that started to hit me. It's like, like, by what right do they, or by what logic do they say that all of this is wrong? If I'm really a smart monkey and I was here by accident and um, there's no real purpose to this, then what else would you expect? I mean, what, what would you expect somebody to do whose job it is to dominate and survive because might makes right in that situation, right? So there's an ethical code that goes along with, with these worldviews. And I'm not saying that, you know, if you believe in evolution, you're going to shoot up a school. I'm just saying that there's, you know, with that kind of, of psychotic behavior, You've got to refute it at some point and, and make a definitive statement that says this is wrong. And if I'm an accidental being that's just trying to eke out an, an accidental existence and somehow flourish in some way while trying not to do too much damage to the world around me, I could make a case for wiping out the weaker, right? It's, and so I, I remember just thinking like, okay, either I'm a really smart monkey or there's some intentionality here. I'm, I'm actually doing something here. So a worldview is going to, you know, we can call it a religion. We can call it a worldview, whatever. Um, what you think happens half a second after you die affects what you do here, 
right? Why am I doing a podcast right now? Why are we here? We want to make disciples. That's the whole the whole key to this thing, right? Jesus deserves disciples, and someday we're going to be talking to him, and he's going to ask us, hey, what did you do with all that opportunity that I gave you? The way we funded this, uh, the, the equipment of this and everything, somebody came into the office and dropped off an envelope full of money and said, use this for the glory of God. Or I think, I think they said, use this to make disciples. And so we said, okay, what this gives us an opportunity to try some stuff that might maybe result in the glory of God. So we took a shot at it and said, Hey, would you mind if I used it for this? And they said, great, do it. And so here we are just figuring out a way to make some disciples. Well, why? Because that matters on this Monday morning on which we're recording this. I mean, dude, if this recording doesn't go anywhere, then this literally doesn't matter. Right. But we think there's eternal implications for this stuff. So yeah, atheism has an eschatology. If you die and nothing happens, then that is your study of the last things. It's over. Right. Um, and that affects the way that you live. So and then nothing matters. Right. So Islam has an eschatology, and it is, uh, you know, that actually Islam believes that Jesus will, Jesus says, you know, they, they see him as a prophet, not as the son of God. Uh, Jesus, the prophet, will come back and, and administer judgment. So actually, we agree with Muslims that Jesus will be the judge of the world. We just disagree drastically about the the nature of his person and the work that he has accomplished, right? Um uh, Mormonism, there's a lot of, uh, this is a, a heavy concentration of Mormons in our area. Um, not as heavy as it used to be, actually, which is kind of weird. I don't know what happened there. Anyway, um, their eschatology says that after you die, there's a process called exaltation where you can continue to advance through the levels of heaven and so on. So that's, that's the study of the last things. Those are, you know, those are eschatological statements. I think the, um, I might be wrong about this. I haven't studied this in a long time. Uh, but if I remember right, the Jehovah's Witnesses are basically annihilationists. So they believe that you die and then your soul just kind of, you know, poof or something. I like <laughs> there's mm-hmm. there's not really a hell, right? Yep. You you go to heaven and do some stuff if you're part of the 144,000 or you just kind of dissipate. I don't know what the, what the deal is. So yeah, every religion has an eschatology. And even the people that claim that they don't have a religion, they have an opinion about what happens after you die they may not be very confident in their opinion but they've got one you know they've got a guess at least so yeah i I think i think yes i stand by that fine it 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 would appear that i actually communicated something clearly in a sermon about that 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 does happen from time to time (laughs) usually about once a week by the by the grace of god occasionally yeah i don't know i mean eschatology is sort of a christian word uh, in in our circles that's something that we say at church but but really everybody's got one right and if if you've got a a holy book or a holy scripture for your religion it's going to have you know it's going to have it laid out in there somewhere even actually you know um buddhists right they they don't really have a and, and hindus also they don't really have a core text that is the canon by which they argue. It's more of a, you know, Buddhism and Hinduism, it's more of a collection of ideas with broad agreement across them, right? Um, but there's there's eschatology there too. It's the reincarnation thing, or it's, you know, you're in, in Buddhism, you're going for, um, for Zen or Nirvana and however all those things interact and whatever. I mean, you're going for some sort of enlightenment or escape or something. That is an eschatological goal that they, they live in a certain way in this life for the purpose of attaining a certain type of existence in the next life. With us, you know, we here, here's what you should explain this one. The um the idea of working for a heavenly reward, right? Because on earth greed is a bad thing for Christians. We don't like greed, right? Um and, and the Bible warns against I mean James 5 is vicious in its warning against uh against greed. Well, then how is it that we're working for a heavenly reward? Does greed suddenly become good when we die? 
You know, what's that all about? What's our eschatology there? Well, I think it's interesting because because your eschatology really does affect your entire life. And so as you as you think about what your end is and what kind of goals that you strive for, I think God I think God intentionally gives us good goals to strive for, to run for. And rewards in heaven, I mean, you know, first of all, uh, just the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Boom. I mean, you know, regardless of whatever else, whatever possible crown or whatever I might receive at the end, it's like, get you know, knowing, A, that that has already been accomplished because it's being attached to Christ, I... I gain that, yeah. But on top of that, that whatever I have, it's it's an opportunity, frankly, for more worship. Because what am I going to do with that crown, right? Yep. I'm gonna, I'm going to be tossing it at his feet, going, you offer here's it another, back. here's another, here's another aspect of worship that I get to that I get to perform. I get to take that which you have given me, and then I get to return it back to you in praise and worship. Yeah. Well, and that exchange that happens there, I mean, that's what we call relationship, right? God gives to us, we give to him. You've got this, this conversation happening, mutual offering. It's like eternal Christmas. I mean, this is, so the, the, the point of rewards in heaven is not to collect rewards. It's not to collect riches. It, it winds up just amplifying our relationship with God through through offering a beautiful thing. So, yeah. All right. Well, listen, guys, the world's a messed up place, right? But we got a gospel that's perfectly suited to fix it. So have that gospel nimble on your lips, be ready to share it, and we'll see you on the next one. Hungry for Wisdom is a ministry of Grace and Truth Community in West Richland, Washington. You can find out more about us on our app, social media, or at graceandtruthcommunity.com. We love Him because He first loved us.